questions at all that you might like to ask about, feel free to. Uh, anything at all that you would like to speak about. And sometimes areas of interest concern arise from meditations, instructions, talks, previous inquiries, etc., etc. So do feel free to uh, touch upon anything which is of interest or of concern to you. Any time the person or myself can say thank you to bring a close, three minutes shared silence, then I'll say anyone, then another person may wish to uh, speak. And we alternate with the alternating agendas as well, of course, and priority given to those who didn't speak in the previous uh, inquiries uh, that we've uh, had. And just remind me what gender we finished on last time. Hmm? Man. So, uh, the other gender at uh, this time, and anyone who wishes to come, come. Remembering too, it can be recorded or unrecorded, and it's fine. Also, it's not record, uh, necessary to record the, uh, the three minutes. Uh, I have a number of, uh, a lot of questions related to the, no, uh, the Noble Path, the Four Noble... For the, for noble truth. Well, that's the, path. I'm getting to my confusion right away. Right. And the Eightfold Path, and uh, mindfulness and enlightenment. <laughs> no, it's all one question. All right. Um, which is, you yourself said, and, and one of the other speakers said, and... Uh, that the fourth noble truth is not mindfulness, it's the Eightfold Path. Yes. But the way the Dharma, the way I feel that it, it's put out mm. most of the time is that the fourth noble truth is mindfulness. Yes. And in fact, I do have a lot of trouble understanding why it isn't the fourth noble yeah. truth. Mm. Especially because it seems if, if the third is that there is freedom from suffering, it yeah. seems that I know that mindfulness in and of itself is not freedom from suffering, but no. it seems like it's the biggest single factor. I see. And, and we spend all this time on mindfulness and rel relatively little time on the Eightfold Path. It seems, like, it seems to me that much more emphasis is given to mindfulness. I it see. is the... Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I can understand how the uh, conclusion could be uh, drawn uh, there. But um, if we take uh, the, eight, the features of the Eightfold Path there, I think we might see on these retreats with us that in fact we do our best to address them, all of them in different ways. So the first one is right understanding. And right understanding uh, is the same thing as finding wisdom that resolves uh, suffering there. And the second link is right intention. And that's equally as important. The, uh, the thief, the burglar in the night, is uh, extraordinarily uh, mindful, far better than anybody else would ever be. And every single moment it picks up, and every step in, in one's bedroom while one is watching TV. It's an extraordinary degree of mindfulness, but phew, the intention. 
So intention matters a great deal there, of course. Uh, uh, the, the speech in the times of the small groups, the one-to-ones, inquiries, uh, etc. What do we say and what goes uh, with it? So as one follows through, and of course, uh, attend to livelihood and other factors. And the mindfulness here, but it's not mindfulness alone, it's mindfulness with samadhi. So yes, we exp- importance of mindfulness when cleaning, when brushing the teeth, when going through the day, etc. But, this, but mindfulness in the sitting, mindfulness in the slow, slow walking, gives an extra quality of concentration to it. Gives an extra quality of meditation, which is the eighth link, the samadhi. So, it's, so that is equally being emphasized through the number of hours of the day that we are engaged in meditative awarenesses. They're saying, please make an effort. Make an effort to overcome the difficulties, to develop what's really helpful and useful in the practice. Develop the practice through the day. There's the effort there. So, though in language one might hear the word mindfulness or awareness in in that, but actually when we step back, I I feel, I believe, that we are genuinely attending, within the context of a week, quite a lot of those links, and we're putting out a strong emphasis that all of them matter uh, equally. Uh, That's there. And some people, in a a natural way of being, in their way of being, I I, I see and notice, both uh, on retreats and out of retreats, they genuinely do live a very mindful way of being in the world, etc. And there's something beautiful to witness and uh, observe about that. But they need to develop much deeper understanding of things. They need to look at their uh, livelihood, at what their activities are, etc. So, to be fair, I think as much as possible we address them all uh, there. It would be a little bit more on retreat with the mindfulness practice. I agree. But it is only a number of days out of the totality of the year. And as we were on Sally and uh, Shadra, when we give the closing talk, you know, obviously we're bringing those other factors a little bit more as well. So, um, it is an eightfold path, honestly. <coughs> did, um, I'd like to hear, did, is, is that how Buddha also answered the question in, in his discourses? Did, did he make that explanation? He, he, he did. And um, in, if one looks through uh, the text, and uh, I think, Amongst the Western teachers, I think Prabhu Shara and I know the, the suttas as well, as well as any other Western teacher anywhere. Um, that with the uh, text, one really does realize the broad expanse of the teachings. And the, one of the uh, classical comments of the Buddha was, he says, of all the paths, of course he would say this, but anyway, of all the paths, <laughs> The Noble Eightfold Path is the best. Now sometimes we hear, oh, the path of knowledge, and we hear the path of service, and the path of devotion, and the path of meditation, uh, etc. But he says, of all the paths, the Noble Eightfold Path is the best. And the reason that it is the best, that it is in a very immediate way the uh, endeavor to make sure that we attend to every area of our life. That's, and that, that's, that's what gives it such a, such a significance for humanity. That every single aspect of our life he has attempted to address through all of those um, links of the eight, Eightfold Path. 
from that, and, and that's why I think it's that the breadth and the depth that gives it its, its authority and its significance. Then, and I think it's absolutely right. It's the best best path. So, is it best path for you, or are you a mindfulness swallow? That's what's uh, um, hmm, hmm. Well, I, I, I think I do pretty well at trying to follow the Eightfold Path. Good, good spirit, nice to hear. Uh, so, yes, yesterday, <laughs> yesterday I gave a talk at um, CIMC, the, the center in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the evening, and the Taikville of the talk was, um, are you fully committed to enlightenment? Are you, f are you committed to full awakening? Something like that. So, I'm asking you. I, I am very, very hey. glad you asked that question. I really good. am. Good. Give me Is a good answer. Good? Um, well, I'm going to answer, answer with a question. Uh, you're the first person I ever heard say that Awakening can come anytime. It's not necessarily far away and to me that is incredibly profound and powerful Lovely. Good. Uh, Just incredible um, But then I want I want some truth in advertising uh, <laughs> How since you asked since yeah, you brought yeah, this up yeah, yeah, sure. uh, <laughs> How of all of us sitting here what roughly how likely do you, do you think it is? <laughs> How likely do you think it is that how many of us will someday be enlightened? And I'll tell you, I'll tell you partly why I'm asking. Partly I want to know for myself. No, but beyond that, um, I think it would make a difference if the chances are one in a million or one in ten. I mean, one in ten, I'll take my chances. <laughs> One in a million is a different story. <laughs> now, that's, that's not to say that I wouldn't still do the practice, because I think there's no. tremendous benefits of the practice, even short of enlightenment. But I think in the long run that this question would affect my practice. Yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> and, and some would say, because they have other views, that one in a million is optimistic. So, so in uh, looking... Uh, at this, since you were asked the, uh, the question uh, here. The question is coming from um, ordinary mind, which picks out this and compares with that one in. There's a measurement which is uh, uh, going on. And the mind is, of course, looking for uh, assurances and is confusing the activities of the self and ourselves and these assurances. So, um, uh, uh, from the Dharma of um, awakening, it's an unclear uh, question. Let me, but let me answer it in another way. There are people on the retreats who come to full awakening. That I can tell you. There are people on retreats who um, know what it is to abide with a noble consciousness. There are people in retreats who know what the end of the Eightfold Path uh, really means. There are people in retreats who know what freedom is and the knowledge of that, the taste of that, the sweetness of, of that is very, very familiar. There are people on retreats who listen to the Dharma teachings on the ultimate truth of things and cognize them in their being 
well and clearly and do not feel a gap between the Noble Eightfold Path and its fulfillment. That I can tell you. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Good. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, please. I'm wondering, Christopher, if, mm. if you think that there can be a longing or a yearning that is without desire. I'll try and respond in a moment or two. Tell me a little bit of background to the question. I wonder sometimes what keeps me at this. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Good. And a teacher's a teacher that I had. I don't remember her saying this exactly, but things that she said that sort of filtered through my mind. Mm-hmm. Readings I've done. Um, uh, readings that I have done. Oh yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and also. Um, there have been moments in my life when I've felt a longing or a yearning that I knew could not be satisfied by anything. The immediate uh, response and your answer to the question was yes. My immediate response to mm. it was yes. Um, but a little bit with the language is always a little difficult. Mm, yeah. Yearning, longing, and uh, 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 desire. Mm. What I uh, hear from uh, meeting and talking with some people, and maybe one of those, there's a, there's a desire in the conventional sense, which not only in terms of the worldly world of, uh, of uh, success, and gain and ownership and pleasure. And sometimes that world, you know, the impact of it, begins to lose its grip over us, but it may come something else, a kind of, uh, you could call it a spiritual yearning, a longing, in, in some other way, which one knows can't be satisfied in any conventional kind of sense. And sometimes, for some people, it's almost, it doesn't feel like desire in any gross way, it's almost, almost organic in the, in the being in some way or other. And one doesn't know what one feels separate from, because desire and yearning imply yes. towards something. Yes, duality. Yeah, duality, exactly, a duality. And one doesn't quite sense what, what is separate from, but one just feels it in the being. This, this, some longing and yearning for something beyond, which one can't measure and can't fix and can't even grab hold of there. And that um, particular uh, one, which is genuinely deep with uh, a a number of uh, people, I think it's unfair to put it in the language of desire. It's like, in the desire, desire often sounds like, to me anyway, Many desires. It seems like we have, as it were, some metal of choice about it. Sometimes, the desire. I could do that, or I might desire to do that instead. 
And sometimes that choice gets reduced through addiction. You know, the choice seems, seems to be even less. But there's other dimensions of spiritual life, and saints and sages and the mystics, past and present, have reported this kind of longing and yearning for something beyond the finite. And it is important that we're very respectful to that and we acknowledge it. If there is no sense of, as it were, being joined to that which one longs for, then always with any kind of longing or yearning it has to be vulnerable. And one of the vulnerabilities will be some feeling uh, or thoughts arising of doubt about it. Doubt. So how, how are you with longing and yearning, doubt, I'm assailed by doubt. You are? I have been assailed, assailed by doubt. By doubt. Um, however, um, there is hope um, through, um, through wise understanding and yeah. through clarity and through perseverance. If, if it's fairly inevitable you live and abide with the longing and the, and the yearning, it goes hand in hand with the doubt. <laughs> you get one, you get the other. So, you know, that, that's... The longing and yearning, as I say, sometimes is very deep. It's not like it's a conceived longing and yearning. It's something else, somewhere else, hard to explain. And but the mind comes in as well, and it has, it has doubt. And... Peace comes, of course, giving wise attention and, and exploration, as you pointed out, is important. But true peace comes when the longing and yearning reaches the end of the journey. Then, then that goes and the doubt also goes immediately. In your relationship to longing and yearning and the ending of the doubt, is it that the gap so to speak, always seems much the same. Though, do at times you feel closer to that, I'm not putting any names too, but to that which ends the longing and the yearning? Do you have any taste of that which ends? So, does it stay the same the size of the gap? Does the time you feel close and the times further away? Or is there any sense of taste of in your life? Anywhere, retreats, outside? Sometimes there's a lessening of the gap, um, and but sometimes the doubt is very strong, so that um, the gap seems very large. Yeah. So the gap, the, the doubts contribute to the size of the gap. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So all things to be aware of in the whole spiritual journey and path here in the form that you described. And when the doubts are coming in, you have to be very clear. Longing, yearning, doubts, feels like a big distance from. Then, doubts may drop away. Longing and yearning may be uh, there. Then some 
a little bit more, uh, less of the gap. Anything that's happened to you where one has felt there is no gap or you feel to be on the edge of something or close to? And what would be, what would be the signals or signs? What would communicate closeness to or touching upon or on the edge of? They were a long time ago, but the experience um, came um, a number of times of unexplainable joy. Good. Why a long time ago? I was quite young. (laughs) That's just eliminated 80% of the people in the room. (laughs) I have to take that view. I don't think uh, the color of your hair has got a great relationship to the the gap, <laughs> so they, they say. So, what's stopping the uh, inexplicable joy arising today? Today? Today. Now. Now. You mean now in this moment? Exactly. Or today, if you want to. <laughs> Make it a little bit more expensive. Give me a little leeway. A little leeway, you're right. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, Christopher. Maybe I should think for a second. Take your time. Okay. It's an important question. I I would have to say it's the power of my little self, that little thing that I think is me. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes the the, the self comes in and the self and the condition of it, only the self and only the condition of it, does make for some gap, but also can be enough to stop natural happiness and joy coming. Since you've, since being here, just over the, the few days, what would you say, if any, was the um, best moment of the retreat for you, or the happiest moment, or the, which was enjoyable? Anything at all since being here? Yes, I, I have particularly enjoyed the uh, small group meetings with the three of you. Uh-huh. They have been a source of of great help and inspiration and um, I wouldn't say joy but happiness, definitely happiness and also um, the the enormous gift of the Sangha. Yeah, lovely. lovely. So, as, as and in one of the, our small groups, one of the men today expressed appreciation to the others in the group mm-hmm. for, the, for the benefit he had received just from listening to the others yes. and it is an important aspect uh, so sometimes in situations, a small group is the, the, the Sangha, you know, the Buddhist has said this is one of the three jewels of life there. And again, it becomes that uh, doorway and access to something else. I think definitely for me, I uh, feel very lucky um, to, have, to have found um, the Sangha, the Buddha and the Dharma. Yeah. 
So, situations like that touch uh, um, a place of joy, and that joy uh, nourishes us. And but equally important in the experience of the joy, the longing uh, that's there, that actually in the experience of the joy is the end of the longing. Yes. And that uh, it may be happiness, which is more sometimes uh, has a stronger form to it of sensation. Joy in Dharma language is a more refined form. Inner peace is another refined form uh, uh, of of that. And there is a sense of some ending, not absolutely necessarily, but some ending of the longing, which is which is there. There's nothing to be added to that which has touched. That receptivity to all of that matters a great deal. Essence of the Dharma is to realize, what does this joy come from? What does this happiness come come from? And that answers all the yearning of life, all the wanting of life. So the nearest in heart experience is the happiness and joy that you just described. It's not the ultimate end of all things, but it's the nearest and the sweetest expression out of the heart of that which answers all issues of living. Anything you'd like to say that? I don't know if I fully understand no, no, what no, you're no. saying. Um, if I may... Um, are you saying that the, the happiness or the joy that I experience within this mm-hmm. fellowship and mm-hmm. womanship. Yes. Um, that that is, a clo- it's a, a lessening of the longing. Yes. And that it's also um, an intimation yes, of absolutely. that which ends all problems. Exactly. Exactly. You've understood it. That is exactly what is being said. I can take it to heart. <laughs> Sometimes I hear words and under- think I understand them, and then I don't. <laughs> but I'm, I guess that's the doubt, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Very good. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I wanted to ask about, I wanted to inquire about yes. mm-hmm. unfettered uh, consciousness mm-hmm. and awareness. Mm-hmm. I've been struggling with that since you spoke of it um, several days ago. It's been um, an obsession of mine, like uh, this woman here was obsessing Mm -hmm. about the the, uh, veganism. And it's invaded my practice, and yet it's been an obsession all my life. Mm. Because I've looked at it as a question related to um, the real question that I've been obsessed about is free will versus things being determined. And I've also looked at, I don't know nearly as much as many people in this room about the specifics of the Buddha's life and the teachings, but in enlightenment, I'm wondering if the enlightened individual Mm -hmm. is completely free of uh, contextual experience. It doesn't seem to me to be a true appreciation of of reality. So, so, go ahead and say it. I don't, think, I don't think someone who's enlightened or someone, 
such as even the Buddha, is uh, a being, a consciousness that doesn't come from some context. Even a being who is enlightened, someone who has awareness, someone's life that's flowing through the Eightfold Path, say, mm -hmm. they come from, they emerge from an experience in which they have learned, they have cultivated mm -hmm. some kind of um, their being. And so their being is bouncing with grace off of a whole bunch of different experiences, but those experiences aren't without their historical or experiential background. So, um, true, uh, true enough, and pretty well most of what you say, are you drawing conclusions about the uh, contextual situation and enlightenment? or liberation, or was it unfettered freedom, or whatever. You're drawing a conclusion here. Yes. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. I am... Um, carefully now. <laughs> <laughs> I should, and I, I do. Good. And I do more after uh, last night. <laughs> um, and yet there's still this burning passion with me. I think, responding to what Seth was talking about the other day, for people in this age and for this time, there's an opportunity for us to look at awareness and consciousness in a slightly different way. Mm. We have an experience of knowledge about environmental conditions that make a, a lot of who we are. Mm. So that awareness, that enlightenment, may be a, something that allows us to um, perhaps push... I want to use uh, terms that don't have uh, don't have direction to them and and stuff. But I, it can allow us to go into the enlightenment situation a bit quicker, easier, if it's easy. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, two or three points which you've expressed and 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 all deserve uh, various kinds of attention. So uh, one is the issue of determinism and free will, and the West, as you know, has had problems with, with both. Mm -hmm. I mean, Dharma teachings both would re be regarded as an extreme position uh, to take. So if uh, on the determinist end of things, if that's the case, then uh, we are paralyzed. We are total, totally living out the past, and there is nothing else, and that's where fixed. If it's uh, uh, free will, then how is it that the free will can't just say, okay, I stop suffering? And mind doesn't take any notice of it. Except, as well as all the other limitations that put free will into a kind of questionable category uh, of, of its own, as though there is no past, and it's just free will at work. So both are uh, viewed, I think quite rightly and appropriately, with a great deal of concern and scepticism uh, uh, in that. And therefore there is a, an explorer attempt to explore um, a middle way. When you hear, because you're fairly new to these things, but when you hear the word enlightenment or awakening, this kind of Buddhist language, which is also has been used in West philosophy, etc., what what, what's your understanding of what is meant by the word? What, what, what's the association? Since it's a, an umbrella concept pointing to making reference to, what, what's your response when you hear the word? Because in, in Dharma teachings, it's very, very precise. 
and therefore there could be a little confusion with the language first. What do you, what do you think? When I think of the word enlightenment, I think of a consciousness, mm -hmm. uh, a being that is acting with such um, nobility. Mm. And the nobility comes from a steadfast awareness and a, a, um, a good heart mm -hmm. and a cultivated attitude and practice mm. of being for self and mm. being for others. Yes. This, uh, I, I would agree. Um, one uh, extra point, though. That, in awakening, is the, the outcome of the awakening. So those qualities, the noble way of being, the noble consciousness, the uh, living a noble way of life, etc., is the uh, outcome. Outcome of what? The, I would say the, the transformation of context for that, for that individual. They right. Yeah, right, lovely. Okay, so... Here's a situation where we live, as you point out, in an everyday world, in a very contextual situation. I, as a human being, am very much dependent on my environment around me, of other people and places. I affect people and places, and people and places affect me, and there's a context for that we call living in the 21st century, or whatever it might be there. And in that context, this uh, interaction goes on, the dynamic goes on. And one could say, my gosh, we're all living in a context, and we're rather tied, we could say, mm -hmm. rather tied to the context in which we live. Mm -hmm. And then what is introduced in that, in the Dharma, is liberation. What's your response? Yes, I, I agree. Good. Therefore, what's the conclusion? Context is a liberating experience in the right individual at the right moment. All right. So, what is liberation? Freedom from context. <laughs> Thank you. You're right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Freedom from context. But how can one be totally free from context? By living a noble life. Simple. If one is in context, one is in the structure around. That structure around is bound in time. Mm -hmm. Called past, called my present, called my future, called what I'm doing with my life, called the way the world that I live in affects me, the way I affect the world, etc. Liberation is freedom. Freedom from what, as you said? Freedom from context. Freedom from being caught, stark, in the context, therefore, in the field of time. If one is free, at the natural outcome of it is those qualities that you described. Naturally, organically, easily, effortlessly. I'm going to have to make a fuss about it. it just, that's what happens. So any mild revision of your view? I want to say yes because you're the man.
And I... And I know that to be true. It seems to me that the what I get in deep penetration of the Buddha mind mm-hmm. is that the Buddha mind is always flipping from one position, one absolute, staying away from absolutes, yeah. uh, yes or no, flipping, 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 in a graceful way through a lot of practice and devotion. So. I think that if somebody says, though, they can get in danger if they say that free from context and stick with that free from context totally because that's not the truth either. It is, but it... it, So what you're saying, if I can say besides you the man, is that, yes, I can see a graceful being moving outside of context, but at the same time that being is within and always is in context. Yeah. I think you're just expressing a middle way very well here, and not, also not wanting to be caught in an extreme. And uh, I respect your good perceptions there very much. So, yes, I quite agree. If one goes to one extreme, it will be like clinging and holding to, I am out of context. Mm-hmm. That would be one extreme. Mm-hmm. And all that could arise out of that, often detachment, coldness, mm-hmm. arrogance, or whatever it might be, and the other would be to be completely embroiled in it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, anything that goes on, God, it, I, it really affects me, it hurts me, it makes me so mad, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, the context of the past or the present, all of that that goes on. So I agree, there is a middle way between those two extremes. I think your point is absolutely right on. And that middle way, understood well, is also simultaneously limiting. No extreme, therefore not outside of, not inside of. Both would be prisons. Is not limiting. That that knowledge is is a not limiting. Yeah, one is free to use the Dharma of the of the Buddha here. Free um, uh, in all all directions. A person who lives totally in context. Yes. The world will have a painful impact on them. It's all they know is the world. Yes. You know, this goes right, this goes wrong, and all the conditions of life, success and failure and profit and loss and health and sickness and pleasure and blame and life and death all of them that's being stuck in context there you say hey there is an awakening uh, there it doesn't deny context but there is an awakening or liberation or freedom whatever you want being with God if you like that language uh, there in which one does one knows and and one does not feel to be caught in the context, even though the life is going on. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the indicator, the clearest indicator of all, is that one doesn't feel to be in a problem in life. So how's your commitment to seeing all this well and clearly all for yourself? I'm absolutely committed to it. Good spirit. Very good. It comes across. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.